Harry Truman became President of the United States near the end of World War II, so back in the mid-1940s. I'm not positive, but I think he may have come from the most humble beginnings of any president in United States history. Uh, certainly the most humble beginnings of any president in probably the last 150 years. Uh, president Truman did not come from a, a wealthy family. Uh, he was a, a farmer, and he was not a particularly good one as a young man. Uh, he failed in several business ventures uh, before finally going into politics and achieving some success. Uh, prior to his entrance into politics, he had he'd gone into debt a number of times or close to it a, a number of other times. He had kind of always moved from one thing to another, struggling as he went. Well, of course, he, he finally does achieve political success, and somewhat unexpectedly, he becomes president. Uh, now, President Truman was not universally loved by the American people, but he was a very popular president among the working class of the country, and particularly farmers. Uh, you could understand why this might be true. They saw President Truman as one of them. He had once been in their shoes. He understood them. They felt as if he understood them. Uh, and he did more than just understand them. With it, throughout his political career, he, he advocated for the working class of the country. He advocated for farmers. He advocated for other blue-collar workers in the country. And so they loved him. You might say that, that President Truman cared for the working man. He cared for, for the common man of the country. Uh, now, if there is, is one theme that seems to show up in books and movies over and over and over again, it is the celebration and glorification of, of leaders who care for the common man. People love champions of the common people. Well, with that in mind, turn with me to, to Luke chapter 1 in your Bibles, if you have a Bible with you. Uh, Luke chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 39 through 80 of Luke chapter 1 today. Uh, last week, we saw the angel Gabriel coming and making two announcements about miraculous conceptions, uh, one to Zechariah and Elizabeth about the birth of John, uh, birth of John the Baptist, and one to Mary about the birth of Jesus. Uh, and in these announcements, we learn something about who Jesus is. He's the, the long-awaited Messiah. Uh, Jesus is, is greater than John. Remember, those accounts were put side by side, and, and Luke makes it clear that, well, Jesus is greater than John. Uh, Jesus is the Son of God. He is God's everlasting King. Well, in our verses for this week, Luke again directs our attention to Jesus. Again, we will see this promise of Jesus being God's promised king, the one to sit on the throne of his father, David. But we will also see Jesus is the lifter of the lowly. Now, Jesus is the lifter of the weak and the humble. In a much more profound way than President Truman, Jesus, you might say, cares for the common man. He exalts the lowly. So please follow along as I read Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 80. In those days, Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah, where she entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped inside her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy inside me. 
Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, because the Mighty One has done great things for me, and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. And Mary stayed with her about three months. Then she returned to her home. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she had a son. Then her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her his great mercy, and they rejoiced with her. When they came to circumcise the child on the eighth day, they were going to name him Zechariah after his father. But his mother responded, No, he will be called John. Then they said to her, None of your relatives has that name. So they motioned to his father to find out what he wanted him to be called. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they were all amazed. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free and he began to speak, praising God. Fear came on all those who lived around them and all these things were being talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. All who heard about him took it to heart saying, what then will this child become? For indeed the Lord's hand was with him. And then his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times, salvation from our enemies and from the hands of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant that we, having been rescued from the hand of our enemies, would serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The child grew up and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Well, I have three points for you to consider from these verses this afternoon. The first is the identity of the Savior. The second is the work of the Savior. And the third is the people of the Savior. The identity of the Savior, the work of the Savior, and the people of the Savior. And the main idea that I think Luke is trying to get across in these verses is that Jesus is the Savior, and he came to redeem the lowly and the humble. Jesus is the Savior, and he came to redeem the lowly and the humble. Uh, So with that in in mind, let's turn to that first point, the identity of the Savior. Well, in in these first few verses of our text this afternoon, Luke records this scene of Mary coming to visit her cousin Elizabeth. Uh, They're both pregnant at this point. They're both pregnant with the children promised by the angel Gabriel. And when Mary arrives, two things happen. Now, first, Elizabeth's baby, who is John the Baptist, leaps inside of her out of joy for being in the presence of Jesus. 
actually, as some commentators point out, in some ways already preparing the way of the Lord as he announces his arrival on the scene, even from the womb of Elizabeth. Well, the second thing that happens is Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, and as she is filled, she bursts forth in prophetic praise. And Elizabeth calls Mary the mother of her Lord. Did you catch that? Elizabeth, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recognizes Jesus as her Lord. He isn't simply the child of her cousin or even a child conceived under miraculous circumstances, but her Lord. And now I think many of you come from from cultures in which it is proper to give those who are older or maybe have positions of leadership a tremendous amount of respect. Uh, Some of you even give honorific titles to those who are older and won't simply call them by their name. Maybe you say Ati or Kuya, maybe aunt or uncle. I'm still getting used to the fact that none of you will simply call me Jesse. You all seem to insist on calling me Pastor Jesse. Well, this was part of of Jewish culture as well. And so it's an amazing admission by Elizabeth that she is calling a child not yet born her Lord. At the very least, it means that Elizabeth saw Jesus as one possessing authority. At the very least, she is giving him a title of respect, a, a title of honor, something that you wouldn't expect one to give to a child not yet born. But I, th- I think there's something more as, as the title of, of Lord is closely linked in the New Testament with the truth that Jesus is God. The title Lord is often applied to Jesus in the New Testament to indicate that he is God. It's an indication of his rule. It's an indication of his authority. And it's an indication of his divinity. Just here in Luke chapter 1, we see the title Lord used interchangeably to describe both God the Father and God the Son, Jesus. And so I think Luke's message is clear. Jesus is God. And so specifically, Elizabeth is recognizing Jesus as God, but not just God in general. She is recognizing Jesus as her God, her Lord. Now, friends, if you are are here and and you are not a Christian, and maybe you are, are new to the ideas of the Christian faith, I want you to know that if you are to be a Christian, you must confess that Jesus is Lord. That's a fundamental confession of the Christian faith that Jesus is Lord. In Romans 10, 9, the Apostle Paul writes this, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So if you confess Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, to to confess that Jesus is the Lord is is fundamentally to confess that you are not. It's to confess that Jesus is is worthy of all honor. He is worthy of all praise. He is worthy of this title, Lord, and not you, not anyone or anything else. It is to confess that he has all rule and authority and power, not you or anything or anyone else. It is to confess that you owe him your honor, that you owe him your obedience, that you owe him your praise. Well, the truth is that Jesus is Lord, not just of Elizabeth. Elizabeth is saying a a truth that is true of every person on this earth. 
Jesus is Lord of all, whether or not you recognize it. But to confess Jesus is Lord, to believe it, to admit it, is to acknowledge that reality and submit your life to him, to devote your life to him. And it's only by making that confession that one can be a Christian. Well, for those of you who, who are Christians, I would, I would simply ask this afternoon, does your life reflect the fact that Jesus is Lord? If others were to, to look at your life, if they were to spend a great deal of time with you, and not just here in, in church and among other brothers and sisters in Christ, but out and about in your daily life, would they see the fact that Jesus is your Lord? Would they see you submitting to him, obeying him, following him, giving him glory? And what would they think when they see the way that you spend your, your time, your money, your energy, your efforts? To confess that Jesus is, is Lord is not just a one-time statement. It's not just something one does and then says, oh, I checked that box, now I'm a Christian. No, an honest confession that Jesus is Lord is a commitment to take up your cross and to follow him. And not once, not twice, but each and every day of your life. Well, friends, it's, it's not just a Elizabeth that makes a, a stunning or surprising revelation or confession in these verses. Mary does as well. Following Elizabeth's declaration that Jesus is her Lord, Mary begins praising God for what he has done for her. And look what she says in verses 46 and 47 of our text. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And she rejoices in God her Savior. But as we keep reading in Luke's account it becomes apparent that this Savior is Jesus Christ, uh, the very son that she is then carrying in her womb. In, in verse 69 of our text, Zechariah proclaims, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Well, who is this horn of salvation? It's Jesus. Who is the, the king who will sit on David's throne? As, as we saw last week, as Luke made clear last week, it is Jesus. In Luke chapter 2, verse 11, which we will look at in our sermon text for next week, when the angels announce Jesus' birth to the shepherds, they say, Today, in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, which is the Messiah, the Lord. Who is the Savior? Who is Messiah? Who is this Lord? Well, it is Jesus Christ. And so in her, in her praise, Mary is recognizing Jesus the child that she is carrying as her savior. And so friends, I, I think it's important to, to stop here for a moment because a, a lot of bad doctrine surrounding Mary has been built off of Luke chapter one. Mary is often called blessed and favored in these verses, and, and certainly she is. God gave to her an amazing grace. He gave unmerited grace to Mary that, he, that she would be the mother of God's son. But despite what you may have been taught, Mary did not remain a virgin for her entire life. You can see Matthew chapter 1, verse 25. Jesus had brothers. You can see Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. And despite what you may have heard, the Bible nowhere teaches that Mary was preserved or freed from original sin. Instead, the Bible teaches that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This includes Mary. In these verses, Mary calls Jesus her Savior, which shows that she knew there was something that she needed saving from. 
And friends, you should not venerate Mary. You should not worship Mary. The Bible teaches that God alone is worthy of worship. He is the one that is high and lifted up, exalted, worthy of all glory and honor and praise, the one and only King and Lord. Now, these verses are not here to announce to you Mary's greatness. Mary is not here praising the Lord to give him praise for her greatness. No, she is praising God for his greatness and his grace to her. And friends, you should not pray to Mary or, or any saint for that matter. The Bible teaches that there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. Mary cannot and Mary does not give you access to God. Only Jesus can do that because Jesus is the Savior for Mary and Jesus is the Savior for the whole world. Jesus is greater than Mary. Jesus is greater than John. He is the Son of the Most High. He is God's everlasting King. Jesus is a once-for-all sacrifice for sins, the Savior of the world, and the only mediator between God and man. He is the one worthy of all worship and honor and praise. My friends, this is the identity of the Savior. This is who Jesus is. And that takes us to the, the second point of the sermon, which is the work of the Savior, the, the work of the Savior. And what I really want you to see here, what I really want you to see in, in this point is the way that Mary and Zechariah, as they give praise, as, as Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesies that they link the saving work of Jesus, they link Jesus' saving work to God's saving work of old, what he has done before. So Mary praises God for the mercy he has demonstrated in sending Jesus. As she proclaims in verse 50 that, that God's mercy is from generation to, to generation. And then in verses 54 and 55, Mary says that the mercy he has shown in sending Jesus is the result of God remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to his ancestors. It's a continuation then. What, do you say? what she's saying is it's a continuation of the promises to Abraham and Israel. And God is at work fulfilling the promises to Abraham, the promises that he had made to their ancestors, and he is fulfilling it in Jesus. You know, Zechariah says the, the same thing if you look over at verses 69 through 75 of the text. In verse 68, Zechariah says God is providing redemption to his people, and this redemption is coming through a horn of salvation from the house of David. And so again, if, if you were here last week, you'll probably remember we spent a lot of time kind of reflecting on that idea. It's God's at work fulfilling the promise he made to David to establish his throne forever, uh, to provide a king who would sit on his throne forever. God is at work here establishing his kingdom on earth through Jesus. That's what Zechariah is proclaiming. As we see in verses 70 and 71, yeah, other Old Testament prophets spoke of this same promise. And particularly during the period of Israel's exile, when they were conquered by foreign powers, when they were taken to live in foreign lands, that they were taken out of Israel, they looked forward to a day that God would provide salvation from their enemies. And so in verse 72, Zechariah proclaims that God has dealt mercifully with the ancestors of Israel. He had dealt mercifully before, and that Jesus' coming was a sign of God's continuing mercy to his people. 
God was continuing his work of redemption that was promised long before, and that had in some ways begun long before. He was bringing that work to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He was providing a greater salvation. As as we just said, God had delivered his people. He had delivered the nation of Israel from their enemies before. Uh, If you just go back in the Old Testament and read something like the book of Judges, uh, the book of Judges is full of stories of God's people sinning. It's full of God's people suffering oppression at the hands of their enemies because of their sin. Uh, God's people finally crying out to the Lord because of that oppression and God responding in mercy by sending a judge to deliver his people from their enemies. Uh, The story of Exodus is the story of God freeing the nation of Israel from their slavery to Egypt by sending plagues to destroy and defeat the nation of Israel as he brings his people out. Uh, Following the time of Judges and following the time of Exodus, God uses the kings of Israel to deliver his people time and again. But what I want you to see is that these periods of deliverance were always temporary. The enemies of Israel always returned because the sin of Israel always returned. Israel's sin was never defeated. The judges and the kings that God raised up to deliver his people were sinful themselves. If you know the Old Testament, you know that the sins of the people of Israel only got worse over time. And therefore, the the enemies of Israel always returned, and eventually Israel was exiled. Israel only ever experienced temporary delivery from their enemies. Israel needed a greater king and a greater deliverance, and this is what the prophecies of the Old Testament looked forward to. For instance, in in Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6, the prophet Jeremiah prophesies this. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up a righteous descendant from David's line, and he will rule as a wise king. He will do what is just and right in the land. And during his lifetime, Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety, and his name will be the Lord is our righteousness. And that was only one of of many prophecies about a, a coming king, a Messiah that would deliver his people and rule and reign in righteousness. Well, it's these prophecies that Zechariah is picking up here in Luke chapter 1 when he issues his, his own prophecy, when he speaks of Jesus being a horn of salvation, the one who will provide salvation from our enemies, when he looks forward to Israel being rescued from the hands of their enemies. He's prophesying that Jesus will be the one to do these things. Jesus is the one promised by the Old Testament. He is the greater king who would provide a greater deliverance for his people. But if you notice, if you notice in the text, Zechariah gives hints that this deliverance would be different. Many in Israel expected God's Messiah would be a a political savior. They hoped God's Messiah would come and save them from the oppression of the the enemies that surrounded them. After all, the the Jewish people at the time that uh, these these stories, these events took place, they lived under the Roman, the rule of Rome. They lived under Roman oppression. They had been living under the rule of foreign powers basically since they had been exiled hundreds of years before. And so many in Israel were looking to be freed from this foreign rule. They were le- looking to be freed from the oppression of Rome. 
But that is not the type of deliverance that Jesus would bring. Look at verse 77. Uh, in verse 77, this is, well, we'll start back in 76. Zechariah prophesies this. And you, child, talking about John the Baptist now, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord, go before Jesus to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. How would salvation come? How would deliverance and redemption come? It would come through the forgiveness of sins. It would come through God delivering his people from their greatest enemy, their own sin. Again, why had the deliverance of Israel up to this time been temporary? Why had it been partial? It's because their sin remained. What the people needed far more than they needed to be freed from the rule of Rome was to be freed from their own sin. And that is what Jesus would bring. Again, God had actually foretold this very thing through the prophet Jeremiah. He said this is what he would do in Jeremiah chapter 31. This is what Jeremiah writes. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my instructions within them and engrave them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. They will no longer need to teach each other to say, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wrongdoing and I will remember their sins no more. Well, many were looking for a political savior. They wanted to be freed from the oppression that they were experiencing. But that's because they missed the nature of God's new covenant promises. They had missed the fact that God was going to do something new. They missed that God had promised to do something new. He was going to do something that the law that had been given to Israel was unable to do. He was going to do something the people were unable to do through their own efforts to obey. He was going to do what the previous judges and kings and deliverers were unable to do. He was going to free their people from their sin. Through the work of Jesus, God would deliver his people from their bondage. He would forgive them. And as Zechariah declares in verse 79, Jesus would shine a light on those who live in the darkness of their sins and who are subject to the shadow of death. Friends, Jesus is the light, the way of salvation, who would open the eyes of his people to see God's salvation, who is God's salvation. Luke's point is that God's Savior has arrived. God has arrived. God's deliverance was here through Jesus' saving, though Jesus' saving work is linked to God's saving work of old. And it's the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. It's the fulfillment of God's promises to David. God was at work doing something new. He was establishing something new. Jesus is the new and greater king, and he would provide a new and greater salvation. Well, friends, in, in light of those truths, I again want to ask you a question, and that question is simply, what are you looking for Jesus to free you from? Are you looking to Jesus primarily to free you from your sin, or is it something else? Do you want Jesus to free you from your sin, or is it financial difficulty or family trouble, difficult life circumstances, physical sickness or disease? And maybe you're here this afternoon because you hope that Jesus will free you from one of those things. That is your greatest hope. 
But friends, I just want to, to say if, if that is your greatest hope, you are hoping in the wrong thing. Jesus offers something far greater than mere deliverance from one of these temporary problems of life. A sickness comes and sickness goes. Difficulties go. New difficulties come. But Jesus offers something greater. He offers salvation from your sin and from the eternal punishment that it deserves. He offers to free you from the shadow of death that is hanging over each and every one of us. He offers forgiveness if you repent of your sins and place your faith in him. And now amazingly, those who look to Jesus, who declare that he is Lord and look to him to forgive their sins, there is a promise that there will be a day when they will be freed from those other things, a sickness and pain, sorrow, trials and tribulations. But friends, I want to be abundantly clear, that is a future hope. God can, God does heal today, but he does not promise to do that. It is only a hope and it is a future hope for those who have been forgiven because that is your greatest need, is to be forgiven from your sin. That is the salvation that Jesus brings, the redemption that he brings. And that brings us to the final point of the sermon this afternoon, and that is the people of the Savior, the people of the Savior. So, so far we've seen that Jesus is Savior and Lord, that he came to redeem his people from their sin. And that leaves the question of who are Jesus's people? Who did he come to redeem? Well, thankfully, Luke points you to to an answer in these verses. I think he points you to two things that characterize Jesus's people, two things that characterize the people of the Savior. One, they're people who believe. They're people who have faith. And second, they are humble and lowly, not just rich and powerful, not just rulers and authorities, but humble and lowly. Well, so first, Jesus's people are those that believe. Now, look why Elizabeth says Mary is blessed in verse 45 of the text. She says, blessed is she, so blessed is Mary, who has believed that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. And Mary had faith. Gabriel comes, announces that she is going to conceive, though she is a virgin, that she is going to bear the Savior of the world, and Mary believes. Now, why does Luke recount this story of John's birth and Zechariah and Elizabeth insisting on naming him John? Is it to highlight that John was an unusual name and that people normally named their kids something that was in the family somewhere? No. Now, Luke puts it here for a few reasons. It's One, it it highlights that God is at work doing something, that people who were present uh, to witness this name, to witness Zechariah being freed from his muteness that that the angel Gabriel had disciplined him with, well, they recognized this. When Gabriel's words were fulfilled, Zechariah could speak again. But primarily, primarily Luke puts it here to show that Zechariah and Elizabeth believed the message that God gave through Gabriel. They believed the message that Gabriel gave about their son and about the coming Savior. He highlights their faith. Yeah, Zechariah doubted. That's why he was unable to speak until this time. We saw that last week. He doubted, but no more. He even had faith in the pressure of his friends. They think they're a bit crazy for naming this kid John, and yet Elizabeth and Zechariah persist. Instead of responding in doubt, he's now rejoicing, and he's responding in praise, and his obedience even leads others to praise as they see that God is at work. And Zechariah is not just rejoicing in the birth of his son, not just that God in his old age has given him the blessing of a son, but he is rejoicing in the promise of a savior, 
That is what his prophecy is all about. And so the people of the Savior are people who believe. But second, the people of the Savior, uh, the second characteristic of the people of the Savior is, is that they are humble and they are lowly. Friends, you might be sitting here this afternoon and feel as if you have little value in this world. You may feel neglected. You may feel overlooked. You may feel mistreated. Perhaps you are not powerful or influential. Maybe you don't even feel like you have much control over what happens to you in this life. Perhaps you don't feel like you have much importance in this world. But friends, if, if that is you, take heart, because none of that matters to Jesus. We'll see throughout Luke's gospel that Jesus has compassion for those that the world has overlooked. He has compassion for those that the world has mistreated. He cares for the lowly. So friends, take heart because you matter to Jesus. Look what Mary says starting in verse 51 of our text. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. But through his work on the cross, Jesus will scatter the proud, he will topple the mighty, and he will exalt the lowly. Well, why? Why is that true? Why will Jesus be scattering the proud and toppling the mighty and exalting the lowly? Well, I want to be clear and I want you to know it is not because being poor or lowly makes one righteous. That is not a, an automatic ticket into God's kingdom if you are poor and lowly in this world. No, the reason that God will exalt the lowly is, it, is because, by and large, it is those who are humble and lowly, overlooked and mistreated, who see their need for a Savior. It is the lowly who are willing to admit that they are sinners, for those of you who have, have ever begun a new job, you may know what, what one of the last things you want to do is. I may be wrong in this. I've begun new jobs before, and I know that's been my own thought, but one of the last things you want to do when you start a new job is to ask your boss for help. You want to show that you are competent. You want to show that you are capable. You want to show that everything you said good about yourself in the interview is actually true, that you can do the job and now, if you're, if you're smart, you'll recognize that making a mistake is even worse than having to ask for help. So you will ask for help. You will humble yourself. But humbling yourself is hard to do. Asking for help is difficult. Yet it's what the Christian faith requires. I want you to, to turn with me in a moment, uh, for a moment to Luke chapter 18, so just a, a few pages to the right in your Bible. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Because this message that God exalts the lowly and humbles the proud is a central theme of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a central theme of Luke's gospel. And it's perhaps illustrated no more clearly than in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector from Luke chapter 18. So beginning in verse 9, Jesus told this parable to certain people who had convinced themselves that they were righteous and who looked on everyone else with disgust. In other words, he told this parable to those who were proud. Two people went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed about himself with these words, God, I thank you that I'm not like everyone else, crooks, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. 
I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I receive. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even lift his eyes to look toward heaven. Rather, he struck his chest and said, God, show mercy to me, a sinner. I tell you, this person went down to his home justified rather than the Pharisee. All who lift themselves up will be brought low, and those who make themselves low will be lifted up. Well, the Pharisee in that parable was proud. He thought of himself as as righteous. He felt himself as deserving of God's mercy and grace as one favored by God. But the tax collector, which was a profession that was very despised in that time, he saw himself as a lowly sinner and simply begged God for his mercy to be shown. And notice what Jesus says in verse 14. It's the tax collector who went home justified. In other words, it's the tax collector who went home forgiven. Well, why? As the text says, it's because he made himself low. It wasn't just that he was lowly. It wasn't just because he was a tax collector. It wasn't just because others despised him. It was that he made himself low by admitting that he was a poor and needy sinner. His being low, his being lowly was a a reference to his position before God, not his position in this world. The Pharisee, on the other hand, sought to lift himself up. I mean, it's absolutely true. It's unmistakable. We'll see it as we read through Luke's gospel that Jesus showed compassion to the physically sick, the materially poor, the overlooked and the mistreated throughout his ministry. He does this to show God's compassion, but he also does this to point to the attitude of the heart that must characterize his followers. They must be those who make themselves low, who humble themselves before him. The mighty and the proud aren't condemned or brought low because of the fact that they have power or influence or wealth. If you go back to Luke chapter 1 and look at verse 51, Mary says that the proud are toppled. They are condemned by the thoughts of their hearts. The thought that, like the Pharisee, says that I don't need God. The belief that in your own righteousness or the belief that your good works can save you the belief that you don't need forgiveness, the belief that you don't need rescue or that you are good enough to earn salvation on your own. Friends, God saves the rich and the poor alike. He saves the powerful and the weak alike. He saves the influential and the overlooked alike. But he only saves those who make themselves lowly. He redeems those who, like the tax collector, humble themselves, admit that they are sinners, and cry out for God's mercy. Friends, the people of the Savior are characterized by humility, but the proud are condemned by the thoughts of their heart. So let me ask you one final question today, and that is, what is the attitude of your own heart? Are you, like the Pharisee, relying on your own goodness, your own righteousness, your good works to earn God's favor? Would you be willing to become humble and lowly in this world to follow Jesus if that is what is required? Would you be willing to give up material comfort, the respect of others, relationships with friends and family if needed to follow him? Are you willing to confess your sin before him? Friends, the the people of the Savior are characterized by humility. It should come as no surprise after reading through Luke chapter 1 here that the response to the gospel, the response that God requires to this gospel, this good news, is to repent and believe. It's because the people of the Savior are those who believe. It's those who confess that Jesus is Lord and Savior. 
and who humble themselves, who repent. And so, friends, my my prayer for you today is that you will see that Jesus is the Savior and he came to redeem the lowly and humble. My prayer is that you will humble yourselves before the Lord. And God's word says that he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so, friends, rely on that wonderful promise of Scripture that if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Draw near by humbling yourselves before him. Let's pray.